Hello, and welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this podcast, I am working my way through all of Lovecraft's writings, or at least as many of his writings as I can get my hands on, certainly all the fiction, uh, quite a lot of the poems, his, his letters, at least some of his letters. It'd be impossible to go through all of them if you had a lifetime, I would think. But um, that's what we're doing. That's what we're going to attempt to do anyways. So... Um, yeah, uh, this episode, well, this is part of a series where we're going through his stories that were published from 1920 to 1924 or so, um, and the story I want to look at today is Cellophase. Um, Cellophase is a dreamland story. It's written, it was written in November 1920, published in The Rainbow in 1922. That was actually Sonia Green's amateur journal, and, and Lovecraft, of course, was married to Sonia Green for a number of years. Reprinted in Weird Tales after Lovecraft died in, in 1939. So this is, as I said, another Dreamland story. Um, and, you know, I'm not... I haven't talked too much about Lovecraft's like psychology that much. I've, I'm more interested in his racial ideology and how that reflects the ideology of his time. Um, I, I think it's something we really have to face and embrace as, as readers of Lovecraft and fans of his, of his fiction and his writing. Um, I don't think it's something that can be compartmentalized. I don't think it's something that can be um, just ignored. I think it's central to his work in, in almost every way. Uh, not so much in his Dreamland stories, though. And that, that's, uh, you know, that really kind of opens up a window more into Lovecraft's psychology, I think. Now, as I, you know, in, as a past, as we look, there are Dreamland stories that hint at some other, I think, important themes that Lovecraft's interested in, such as the sea and travel, exploration. And those kinds of fascinating themes, which are all part of his larger, what he's known for, I think. But, um, you know, I don't talk much about his psychology itself. But Selephus is a story where you almost can't ignore it, right? If, if you want to try to get a sense of, of where Lovecraft was, what he wanted out of his life, I think, and, and what, why, he, why he found the Dreamland story so compelling and why he wrote so many of them, I think this is a great story to look at. Now, he's not single-minded about the dreamlands in his stories. Sometimes, you know, they end up quite badly and, and horrific. And sometimes our, our characters end up happy and, and content. And that's a story like this one, where our dreamer, you know, finds his happiness in the dreamlands, uh, not in this world, right? Uh, now, we know Lovecraft was someone who dreamed quite intensely. We, we know this because he wrote some stories based on his dreams. I believe, um, was it uh, certainly... Um, I think Polaris was based on one of his dreams. The Temple, not not the Temple. What the statement of Randolph Carter was based on one of his dreams, and some others. You know, he he says, "I got the I basically dreamed these." So he's someone who dreamed vividly, who dreamed uh, narratively. Someone who, if we believe him, anyways, and someone who who had this recall, this ability to recall dreams, right? Which many people don't do very well, right? I'm tried to train myself to do this to a degree. I've gotten a little bit better at it. But it's it's a long process to teach yourself to to recall your dreams and, and incorporate them and really think about them. Um, so, anyways, this is a, a pretty straightforward tale of of a dream, dreamer uh, named Karanis. Now, Karanis he does he doesn't even have a name in the real world. He like our character when we meet him is already so beyond this world. I mean, he still goes back and forth between the dreamlands and, and the real world, but he's so beyond that Lovecraft doesn't even bother giving us his name anymore. And his name doesn't matter 
because he's basically isolated and you know he doesn't have an identity in this world he doesn't have family he doesn't have a network he's quote alone among the indifferent millions of london um so there was not many to speak to him and remind him of who he had been so you know just his isolation in this in our world has led him to have only an identity in in the dreamlands now what is his experience of the dreamlands well as he dreams, he, he dreams of the sea, he dreams of travel, he dreams of, of this kinds of adventures. He also dreams of him having a status, an identity, a name, a, a, a kind of a, a, he's a rising star in this world, right? Eventually becoming a king. Um, and I just think this is a beautiful little story. I mean, the prose here is really, really wonderful. It's a really um, striking dream one story. If you haven't read this one yet, because it's kind of a minor one, you think, you think it's not that important to understand Lovecraft or you don't like to dream one stories or whatever. I, I just think this one's a really good one to read. I really enjoyed the, just the, the feeling of, of adventure and exploration and, 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 and the fantasy of it. I think it's really well done here. Um, and I think it's also where we get into Lovecraft's psychology of just, just how indifferent our character is to, to the world he lives in. Um, you know, and it, it's taken to the extreme in this story, perhaps. Uh, you know, in other dreamer stories, the dreamer comes back and can't go return to the dreamlands, like in The White Ship. Or uh, in Polaris, you kind of have this regret over not being able to stay in the dreamlands. And you have other stories where the dreamer ends up to an unfortunate end in the dreamlands. But this is really one of the strongest stories in which, like the Silver Key, the Silver Key has the same kind of optimistic um, outcome. But, uh, you know, you get just a feeling, a, such, an, a, such a good feel from this story, I think. Uh, if, if you similarly feel isolated or you feel that this world's not for you, not made for you, and you, you kind of seek an alternative. And now, politically, I think, obviously, this is kind of a silly um, exercise. But, uh, you know, I can sympathize with it, and, and I appreciate what Lovecraft is, is trying to do here. And something I sort of grapple with is, is you know, automation, the end of work. I've talked about that a lot on the PKD uh, Philip Dick podcast I did. I, I even talked about it a lot in my mainline podcast. It's not a biggest theme in Lovecraft's writing, of course. But, you know, as we maybe move to an economy that doesn't need us anymore, that doesn't really, more of us will end up like Karanis here. And we'll need to find our outlets. And maybe it's not dreaming. Maybe it's play. Maybe it's some other creative activity. Um, but, you know, it's... I think we can find some worthwhile meaning in that. Uh, not everything has to be about work and 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 competing for status in this world. There, there's maybe higher things we can achieve, and and you know maybe a story like this can help us think about that a little bit. So, anyways, we we start out actually in the dreamlands. We don't start with the dreamer in this world. Quote: In a dream, Karana saw the city in the valley and the seacoast beyond, and the snowy peaks overlooking the sea, and the gaily painted galleys that sail out of the harbor towards the distant regions where the sea meets the sky. End quote. And once again, I have to say, you know, Lovecraft is a writer of the sea. More, you know, he's not a parochial New England writer. His stories aren't Arkham-based. They are the sea almost every one of his stories i'm having a hard time thinking of a story that doesn't have some kind of relationship to the sea or to water to in some degree I and mean, there are a few but so many of him are, are really tales of exploration and adventure and the unknown of the of the sea and we just read one the the temple of course was another story of the sea one of his first dagon a story the story of the sea uh the festival innsmouth mansions of madness uh, on and on right stories of the sea and a lot of his dream one stories have that that maritime 
narrative. Um, so then we're introduced to his real world, which I already sort of talked about. It's just sort of an unknown. He's a nobody in London. So he prefers to, quote, dream and to write of his dreams. Um, now, this just further isolates him when people read his weird dream one stories. We can kind of fit in Lovecraft here if you want as someone who maybe had trouble getting his dream one stories taken as seriously as maybe some of his other stories. Um, you know, this just leads him to withdraw more and more into the dream lens. Quote, the more he withdrew from the world about him, the more wonderful became his dreams. And it would have been quite futile to try to describe them on paper. Karanis was not modern and did not think like others who wrote. Whilst they strove to strip from life its embroidered rope of a myth and to shew in naked ugliness the foul thing that is reality, Karanis sought for beauty alone. Uh, that's another really great moment there where, you know, it's... It's kind of a rejection of the scientific quest to know all, to understand all. And I think um, one of the themes of his writing is that maybe we shouldn't try to understand everything or to understand everything is dangerous. I mean, that's the next story we're going to look at is from beyond. And that's very much a story of the dangers of, of the scientific attempt to discover, to explain all in the universe. That if it even can be done, maybe it shouldn't be done, right? And but instead, by going into the by writing on the dreamlands and pondering the dreamlands and his dreams, he's able to get to myth and and to some kind of deeper beauty. It's it's like the inverse of of modernity. I mean, the modern ways you start with kind of the the ascetic, and then you go to the the beyond that, the kind of the literary, the mythological, and then to the scientific and the rational. Right, Karanis works backwards. You're going from the scientific, modern, 19th century London, maybe early 20th century London, whatever. We don't really have a date, but backwards then all the way back to the pure aesthetic, which is probably how our earliest ancestors, you know, experienced uh, the world. So he meditates a little bit on the nature of dreams, children and adults. And I actually thought of supernatural horror and literature here, um, because in that essay, he says something like, you know, only some of us are really hardwired for these experiences. Maybe we're not all set up for this. It takes a special sensitive type, right? And he talks about this a little bit, right? And here though, it is like those who remain kind of as as children to re-keep something of their childhood into their adulthood that allows them to dream and imagine things. Uh, I'll just read the whole thing here. Um, Quote, there are not many persons who know what wonders are open to them in the stories and visions of their youth. For when as children we listen and dream, we think but half-formed thoughts. And when as men we try to remember, we are dulled with prosaics of the, with the poison of life, end quote. So something about growing up of maturation dulls us to these experiences. And so we just kind of throw them away or, or reject them. That we need enough of our childhood to actually take these dreams seriously as reality and, and to understand them and to meditate on them, but children don't have necessarily have the capacity to fully appreciate them or cultivate this aspect. So not many of us can do that, can have both, right? Um, if you've ever read It by Stephen King, I think that's a, a great book. Um, not a big fan of the, the films, uh, either of the adaptations of that, but I think the book does a really good job of talking about you know childhood fears versus adult fears, like and how they're like fundamentally different and almost unreconcilable. Right. And the whole plot of that book is the the adults need to re like go back to this childhood state of imagining to 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 fight this 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 creature. Right. If they can't, they're they're doomed. Right. 
Um, but adult fears like the mortgage are so banal. They're like a different type of terror, right? Like I think Lovecraft gets to this in supernatural horror and literature, to be honest. I, it's been a while since I read it, but you know, that somehow like the childhood fears of being lost, of, of not, of seeing something for the first time and not understanding it, right? That those are the types of fears he explores in his fiction, right? Like, if you saw Cthulhu a million times, which many of us have in images or whatever, he's not that scary to us anymore. But if you were to see something like that for the first time, have you never seen it? Before? That's what drives people mad, right? But children experience certain fears for the first time, right? Like childbirth, you know, experiencing light for the first time, experience cold for the first time. Um, but even when they get older, right, they may experience a burn for the first time or, or losing their parents for the first time or uh, a tree that looks kind of weird and gangly and they see it in the right light and it looks like a monster and they can't interpret it and they can't understand it and then that causes this fear. Um, that is something we lose as we become really rational and, and the dreamer here is someone who can maintain that, that earlier state, I think. And I, and I think that's kind of beautiful and I think there's a true, truth to that, which I... I believe in. Um, he writes, Karanis came very suddenly upon his old world of childhood. He had been dreaming of the house where he was born, the great stone house covered with ivy where 13 generations of his ancestors had lived and where he had hoped to die, um, end quote. So this going back to the childhood dreams and finding a continuity of our fears and our experiences and our, our passions and our, 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 our fantasies is kind of what the story is about. And I think it's great. I think it's great. Now, the vast majority of the story, I'm, I, maybe it's I've been going on so long about these fundamental issues in the story that I'm kind of missing the chance to do kind of a a play by play of the story, as I often do. But um, certainly you can pick up the story and read it. So I'm just going to dispense with that and again, talk about different themes here that I see. Um, but a lot of the story is journeys and journeys that Karanis can take in the dreamlands that whoever he is in real life can't do back in, in London. And he's always journeying here. Like every time he, he goes back to the dreamlands, he's on some kind of quest. Um, now, a lot of these quests surround the searching for the city of, of Selephus right? um, in the valley of Uthnargai, beyond the Tandron Hills, where his spirit had dwelt for all eternity of one hour once uh, of an hour, one summer, long, very long ago, when he had slipped away from his nurse and let the warm sea breeze lull him to sleep as he watched the clouds from the cliff near the village. So he's always trying to go back to this moment that he recalls, this brief moment in a previous dream. And I think that's also very beautiful because I think many of us actually do this. Um, you know, have a memorable dream that you remember and you might try to have that dream again. Uh, but even more in just our real lives, right? That feeling of first falling in love, that, 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 that feeling, like in my personal experience, it would be like that feeling I had like in college when I was first kind of encountering just the, the, the gaps in my knowledge and the depth of how much was out there and the passion I felt. I mean, there was a time when I went, when I went to the library and I scrolled through the shelves, pulled books off the shelves, skimmed through them that I felt kind of orgasmic pleasure in doing that. I felt like the world was opening up to me, right? And I don't feel that anymore. I, I've, you know, I went on and got a PhD, became kind of hyper-rational about these things. It became just part of my job and something I'm used to. And I don't have that same feeling, you know, when I pick up a new work of scholarship. It, it, I've lost that, right? And I wish I could have it back because it's, it's wonderful, right? 
I love opera, right? But when I first discovered opera, like every like act I listened to, every new opera I, I bought and listened to and played on the CD and read the libretto of, I, I felt in awe of and I, and I felt I got totally sucked into it. And I still like opera, but I don't have that same experience anymore, right? And I, and I think Karanis here is after that, right? This, that, that one memory of something that's, that's lost. And, and part of maturation is to lose the ability to experience those things, right? And so it must be a journey. He must have to quest to find that. And that's what most of the story is, is it's mostly spent in the dreamlands. Almost none of this story is set in London, except it's mentioned a few times. And he does go back and forth. But Lovecraft sets almost all the story in in the dreamlands and in and in showing Karan as searching for Salafus. And in a sense, perpetual youth is something he's after there. Now, one thing I didn't talk about when talking about experiences that people try to go back to is is drugs. Um, I have heard this told about drugs, like that you're kind of always searching for that first high again. And I'm not a drug user um, outside of a few recreational small time stuff. But, uh, you know, I do drink a lot. And and I do say I, I remember my first like house party where I got really drunk. And I remember the people there, the faces, that experience I remember very, very clearly. Right. And it is with pleasure and happiness that I remember it. So I kind of I kind of get that I, I buy that um, idea. Um, now why I mention this is because Karanis is is a drug user. Um, um, quote: In time, he grew so impatient at the bleak intervals of day, the banality of his life in London. In time, he grew so impatient at the bleak intervals of day that he be, began buying drugs in order to increase his periods of sleep. Hashish helped a great deal and once sent him to a part of space where form did not exist but where the glowing glasses study the secrets of existence. And a violent colored gas told him that this part of space was outside what he had called infinity. The gas has not heard of planets or organisms before, but identified Karanis merely as one from the infinity where matter, energy, gravitation exist. Karanis was now very anxious to return to the minaret studded Celephus and increased his doses of drugs, but eventually he had no more money left and he could buy no drugs. Then one summer day, he was turned out of his garret. He wandered aimlessly through the streets, drifting over a bridge to a place where the houses grew thinner and thinner. And it was there that fulfillment came, end quote. So he's going to have a happy ending, but he's basically a, a, a drug-addled homeless person at this point in, in the real world. I mean, there's nothing left for him in this world, um, you know, because of drugs essentially drive him to it, but also his fut the futileness of his life, right? And this is something that... Like David Simon talks about it. He's, of course, the creator of The Wire. He talked about addiction a lot in his TV and in his writings. One of his first book, I think it's maybe his second book, was The Corner, uh, which talks a lot about just the day-to-day the -day existence of addiction and brutality of addiction and what that means socially and, and culturally and for individuals. Um, but he makes a point, you know, that, you know, the addict can be put into a rehab facility right or whatever but if he doesn't have really a purpose for living you know that's not going to do that much good because the drug you know the drugs fill in give give you that meaning right i think to quote him he says something like you know if you're a drug addict you know what your life's about you have meaning that meaning is getting high um, but the minute you stop getting high you need to find you have to have a meaning to replace that and 
our society doesn't often create that for the people who are most likely to to have chronic problems of addiction, right? And you can't just kind of grit your teeth through it because if you don't have meaning, you, you, even a job or a family or, or something, you know, what that be, I might be, I don't know, but you know, you need, you're going to need to have it. And Karanis in London is sort of this kind of person. But fortunately for him, he's go, able to go back to the Dreamlands one final time and he meets the knights from Selephus and they bear him to the city. So he finally finds Selephus at the end and and he actually is turned into, he's made into the king of, of Selephus, right? Um, and he reigns over the whole land of Uthnargai um, and, you know, and he, can, and he can stay there. Um, so here's how the story ends. Uh, and Karanus reigned thereafter over Uthnargai and all the neighboring re regions of dreams and held his court alternately in Selephus and in the cloud fashion Cernina. He reigns there still and will reign happily forever the, below the cliffs at Innsmouth. The channel tides played mockingly with the body of a tramp who stumbled through the half-deserted village at dawn, played mockingly and cast upon the rocks by ivy-colored Trevor Towers, where a notably fat and especially offensive millionaire brewer enjoys the purchase atmosphere of extinct nobility, end quote. So that just tells us that in this land, this town of Innsmouth, which isn't the same Innsmouth as the one in uh, the Arkham Cycle stories, uh, but he's found, right? And the final statement here is like, you know, offensive millionaire brewer enjoying the purchase atmosphere of extinct nobility. There's a lot kind of to unpack there. One is, yeah, like, this guy's sort of notable, Karanis. He's not particularly rich, but he seems to come from a lineage. Talks about, you know, living in the same house for 12 years, 12, 12 generations or something. But he's certainly low class when we meet him. He's a nobody. He's a, he's a bum. Um, but this notoriously fat and offensive millionaire isn't. And he's a brewer. Of course, he's feeding off addiction, which is a theme in the story, I think. Um, and, you know, the purchase atmosphere of extinct nobility. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Well, um, it's purchased, mean it's, it's bought. It's, it's something he's purchased with his wealth. But it's also an extinct nobility. It's like, of course, we're in the 20th century here where nobility sort of still exists, but it's not the same. I mean, it's, it's kind of a dead corpse of, of the ancient nobility. But you can still kind of fake it. You can still kind of be the new aristocrat, right? At least that's how I sort of catch read it. I, I kind of dig that that final sentence because it, it does sort of have a little bit of a class analysis there. And, you know, the fact that our character is essentially a bum, I think, is, 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 is notable. It's not the typical Lovecraft, Lovecraftian hero. It's actually kind of the guy who often in his stories will be the villain or the, the working class villains that you see in so many of his tales, like in The Terrible Old Man or whatever. So, um, yeah, Selephus, wonderful story. A lot of adventure, a lot of journeying, a lot of dreaming, and very, very rich, very, very deep psychologically and philosophically. I think at this time in his life, this is where maybe Lovecraft wants to be. I mean, I, I take him seriously with what he's trying to present here, that, you know, his dreams are something he, he wants to experience. And so he creates a character who is able to achieve that, to live forever in his dreams and to, to have a real nobility, to actually become the king of Selephus and Uthnagai, uh, not the fake commercial purchased nobility of our, of our millionaire brewer.
So, anyways, great story, wonderful story. Do 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 read it. I, I highly recommend this one um, for, for as being one of his his best dream one stories. I think. Um, so that's it. So uh, next on the list, um, I'm going chronologically based on writing when they were written. I think um, I, I'm basing my order off Appendix Two of the second volume of the Klinger Anthology of Lovecraft's Writings which is order of writing. Yeah, the first volume has all his writings, but alphabetical, which is basically kind of useless. Um, this is a much better appendix than that one, so that's what I'm using. So next is From Beyond, which was written in the same month as Salafis, but a very, very different story. It's a story of technology and science. And, and of course, it's been made into a film, so maybe I'll check out that film before I comment on it but maybe not probably not it's it, i heard it's, it's just kind of the idea is there but it's not really a, an adaptation of the story so much maybe one or two scenes but anyways maybe if i have time i'll do that but that's what's next from uh beyond and then after that we'll jump right back to a a dream one story called ex oblivion which is very very different than uh Celephus. Um, so yeah that's that's it for now so thanks for listening. I, I hope you enjoy Celephus as much as I do, um, or at least, uh, um, you know, but if not, if you have your own thoughts about the story, let me know. Send, leave me a comment. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks for, for listening. I'll see you next time with my thoughts on From Beyond. <laughs>